before we look into the word of God, let us bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your many, many blessings upon us as we have just gone through these announcements and we have joy, we have uh, compassion on the suffering, we have joy with those that um, are going through joyous times in their life and we're thankful for yet another addition to the family of Brother Phil and Sister Grace, and we pray a blessing upon them. Father, we pray also for the sick and the shut-in, and especially Sister Monica and Sister Olga Vukov that have been suffering for such a long time. Pray that your healing hand may be upon them and that they may feel your presence even though they are not here this morning. Father, look, we look to your word for strength, for edification, and for lifting up. And we commend this service now into your care and keeping as we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For this morning's meditation with the Lord's help, I'd like to turn to the book of Hebrews, the last chapter, 13. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they that have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore... Forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have, here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, rather, to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is at, set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. Dearly beloved, we come to a chapter in the book of Hebrews. We call it a book. It's a book of the Bible, but it was actually a letter. A letter written to Jewish believers. And this letter was written by, actually taken by, it says at the end of this 13th chapter, in the added uh, editorial by the translator, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. We know that from reading this chapter, Timothy was released. He was also released from prison. So the Apostle Paul, who was Timothy's mentor, advisor, um, had a companion in tribulation. And Timothy was not just a young elder in the church at Ephesus that had an easy road. Not only did he have the oversight of the church at Ephesus that had some difficulties, if you read through them, uh, through the letters that Paul wrote to him, uh, he felt perhaps intimidated, too young, probably felt the comments from the congregation to him. Paul says to him, don't let any man despise your youth. Because he was given authority by God to oversee the church at Ephesus. Now we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's, there's no, it's, at least it's not conclusive uh, in most of Paul's letters, he addresses himself. He, you know, I, Paul, uh, in the book of Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians, he introduces himself to. Uh, to the letters to Timothy, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, there's no such introduction. So it's not conclusive. But there could be some um, clues in, in the writing uh, of the book of Hebrews, the letter 
of that, that is written to the Hebrews. The King James Version has the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. So I'm not going to be conclusive. It could very well be Paul who was also in prison. And he writes to his brethren not only in the flesh but in the spirit. If you read the book of Romans chapter 9, he pined, he he mourned, he grieved over his nation that was not saved, the chosen people of God. And if it was Paul writing this letter to the Hebrews, you will see that he actually is addressing a group of believers who started off well, but through difficulties, through the trials that they were facing, through persecution perhaps, some began to doubt the path that they had taken. If we are indeed God's people and we have been delivered by this Messiah Christ, why are these things happening to us? There are some indications of that. If you read chapter 12, the apostle is saying, you have not yet resisted unto blood. He's exhorting them to continue in the faith, to persevere, but has warned them that they haven't resisted yet unto blood. And the previous chapter, he was actually uh, giving uh, a summary of those that were in the, the hall of faith, all the faithful men of God, men and women of God, that had suffered tremendous persecution and opposition and suffering. And then he says, you've got this great amount of witnesses These are witnesses that are not observing you. They're not looking at you and examining you, but rather they're witnesses for Christ. And they are the ones that we look to when we want to see how God works in the lives of his saints for glory, for his glory said, you have this tremendous amount of witnesses and they're all marching towards the finish line and you're not alone, you're with them and they're spurring you on, not by shooing you in but by leading in the front and you're following them. So you have this great example of the witnesses that came before you. And the first 12 chapters are very, very uh, core to the doctrine of salvation. And he was trying to tell them that you that may be looking now back to Egypt, to the law, because you think that things are too tough, for you out here. And he gave examples in chapter 3 and 4 how those that had left Egypt and were saved by the mighty hand of God began to murmur and complain and look back how good it was in Egypt. He says, where do you think you're going back to? 
And he compared the, the, the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Joshua. And he compared the Old Testament priesthood. And he said, all of these things have been far surpassed by Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, if you look in Roman, uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, were given to the Jews as a schoolmaster, as a way to teach them the holiness of God. But it can only take them that far, and the book of Romans is very parallel to that, and says that Jesus Christ is the end of righteousness. The law was the end of right, as far as righteousness is concerned. The law was the end. In other words, it brought you to Christ, and that's where it stopped. But as far as your justification and sanctification, this is where Christ comes in. The law was a schoolmaster, Galatians says, to bring you to Christ. It stops there. And then faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross is what takes us into the fatherland, into the homeland. A land, a, a, a country whose maker and builder is God into a temple that is not built with hands. And so he goes through this very deep theological uh, discussion, the creation of the world in chapter 1, the Trinity, God being Christ being God, the meaning of the Exodus, the meaning of the, the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, who, who uh, uh, Aaron was as a priest, who Melchizedek was as a priest, and how Christ was not patterned after Aaron, who had a beginning and an end, whose priesthood was temporary, finite, but Christ was patterned after Melchizedek without beginning, without end, without father, without mother, whose priesthood is eternal. And he was saying, you want to give up this and go back to the law because of disappointments? And so a, a lot of it is a lot of, if you will, biblical theory. But there are so many warnings in the book of Hebrews. There are so many warnings. And you can go to chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 6 and 10. Very severe warnings of turning back. Jesus says that... Uh, that the writer of Hebrews says, there is no salvation in any other than in Jesus Christ. So where does chapter 13 come in? All of a sudden, we've, we've, we've come from all these really deep discussions on faith and, and salvation. And he comes in and says, let brotherly love continue. Just like perhaps in any school curriculum, the purpose of education is not just to gain knowledge. It's to gain knowledge for a purpose. 
and to put it into practice. And many people that maybe go to school because they like doing something without an end in mind get very disappointed because they can't find a job because they can't really apply it or this, this particular field is not really that common. But there is application to everything that the apostle said in the first 12 chapters. There is an application. And some of it has started um, in chapter 12 when he talked about um, you know all these things now. You know who Christ is, your leader, your captain, your high priest. And when you do suffer, remember, the reason for suffering, the reason is, is that God allows this to come upon us to shape us, to mold us, to chasten us, to discipline us so that we can become stronger and purer and holier. But then he gets into very practical applications in chapter 13. And he says, let brotherly love continue. Isn't that one of the first and foremost fruit of the Spirit? The first love that we cannot forget. That because we are Christ's, because we are God's, we need to exhibit the characteristics of God. We need to love. Let that brotherly love continue. It shows us that it was there because he's saying let it continue. But in times of difficulty, that love can be tested and that love can wane. Especially that love for God. Because if we don't have that love for God, how can we have that love for our brother? John says, how can you say you love God when you hate your brother? So first and foremost, our love for God has to be there. And sometimes we go through periods where we feel that God has maybe forsaken us, or maybe God is punishing us, or maybe God is not on my side. Or God is upset with me. And it's good to examine ourselves in that. It's very good to examine ourselves. But after we have, we can't stay there. We need to, we need to believe his promises. And there's some beautiful promises given in this chapter. So let brotherly love continue. And that love is going to take us through good times and bad. The purpose I believe, well, God is love. But one of the main strengths of love is when things don't seem clear, when we don't understand things, when we may be confused about what is true and what is not true. It's the love that keeps us together until the clouds part, until the dust settles. And God makes us, helps us to see clearly. But in the meantime... It's that love that keeps us together. And that love is what God has given every member of the body of Christ to support each other in. Love doesn't work on its own. You can't have one and love. And that's true in the Trinity. 
The reason, one main reason I believe that there are three in one. God is three persons in one because amongst the three of them, they can exhibit love. They can, they can exercise that characteristic of love amongst the three of them. And he's, and he's put that also into families where he has given a, a man, a wife, and a child. And they can have love amongst each other. It's a beautiful picture. And today, today man is trying to change that. It's a man and a man and a child. Or a woman and a woman and a child. And they've completely taken away what God had created and designed to be beautiful. They've deprived a child of a father or a mother. And the child has no choice in that. What God has designed them for. And be assured that perhaps in the not long or distant future that the church will be persecuted for that point alone. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And it seems very clear that the apostle is, is alluding to the situation in Genesis, was eighteen nineteen, when the three angels came to visit him and his wife, Sarah. And he met them and he invited them to stay with them, to come in and, 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 and have a meal with them. And that was when Sarah began to chuckle when the, she heard that, you know, God is going to promise them a son in, in their old age. And the one asked, why did you laugh? And she didn't tell the truth. Oh, I didn't do that. But Abraham, unawares, at least in the beginning, unawares, entertained angels. And one of them could have been the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. It's not a 100% clear doctrine, but it, it appears that when the word says the angel of the Lord... Because God speaks directly to the person. It may well have been the Lord Jesus, who was eternal. And he entertained these strangers. And doesn't entertain here means he was hospitable to them. He showed the, this brotherly love. He showed this compassion and care. And it's my understanding you know, we are not the only ones that are faced with, with uh, street people that are, have a you know, Tim Horton's cup out and, and, and asking for money. Even in the times of the early church, they had these, if you will, beggars that would come around. And they had a problem on their hands. You know? And they would even discuss among themselves, you know, what do we do with them? They, they keep them coming back. Some are taking advantage of it. And then they would have certain rules. Well, we'll give them this, we'll give them this, but be careful how far you go. I remember somebody once uh, 
came to one of our churches here uh, and and uh, come from the west and he was asking for help and the church got together they collected my, uh, 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 goods and, and furniture and so forth and I phoned a, an elder from the west to ask him he said he came from you but can you give me a reference? We need to be careful. We need to be stewards of God's money, of God's wealth. But he says, be generous, but not too generous. And soon enough, the man took off and we didn't see him again. We've done what we need to do. And many times we can't always try to define exactly, but as we heard a couple of Sundays ago, you know, as the Lord has put it in your hearts, let every man give. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. He's saying, not any different than Jesus said. He said that we are to rejoice with them that rejoice. We are to uh, mourn with them that mourn. And the Apostle Paul says that in another place too, I believe. And he says, but remember them as if you were in that situation. That makes us think differently. And that's one reason, beloved, it's good for us to go out. Because unless we are there, unless we see it firsthand, we don't remember, we don't have these images in our mind. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. You also are subject to that, and it can happen to you, it can happen to me. That's what compassion means. Compassion means feeling for a person with the, the desire to do something about it. Just can't walk by and say, oh, poor guy, and walk off. Do we have a desire to do something about it? Now, he's speaking here about being bound in prison, probably for, for persecution's sake. But he also talks about suffering adversity. And that, that could be a general term, perhaps. All kinds of adversity. We have in our midst those that are suffering. We have those in our midst that are going through di- tremendous uh, trials in their life. And it's easy for us to say, well, they may have deserved it. But are we putting ourselves in their shoes? And do we know all the facts? Do we know everything? We have to be very careful. You know, Job, we had a a Bible class not long ago on on the book of Job. And he had three friends that came to him. And they tried to make it lighter on him by explaining why he was going through this suffering. Job examined his heart and says, "You are worthless physicians. You have no value. And he did seek out, really, from the bottom of his heart, 
why this was happening to him. Finally, God revealed to him. God reminded Job that even in times when he doesn't understand what's going on, he needs to trust in him. And he proclaimed it. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But eventually he gave in. He said, you've been cruel to me. And we may feel that way. That God has been cruel to us. But remember, who is on the throne? And look what he says later on. I'm going to skip a couple of verses for now. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. God will never leave us. The fact that we're going through suffering doesn't mean God has left us. As a matter of fact, he allows us to go through this suffering for his purposes as we have read in, well, not today, but we mentioned today in chapter 12 of of Hebrews. This is a reason. And, you know, we cannot pretend that, oh, every time something happens, we have this pet answer, it's for God's glory. And that's all we say. We can empathize. We can sympathize. We can try to comfort, to, to, but without an accusatory finger. And sometimes we don't know. It fails us. Abraham, the, the very one we talked about, he had no idea why God wanted him to sacrifice his own son after he promised him an heir to, the, to his seed. But he... He trusted in God so much that he was willing to go to Moriah and kill his own son. Because the commentary in Hebrews, I believe, says that he believed that even if he slew him, that he was able to raise him again from the dead. I think we'll go a long way when we try to walk a mile in a man's moccasins. We try to see where they're coming from. Marriage is honourable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Again, the verse that seems to pop up out of nowhere. But it seems that he's alluding to something that he's noticed, that he has heard, and he needs to address. And he's very, very to the point. He wasn't politically correct here. He just basically said here, marriage is honorable. And he encouraged the estate or the institution of marriage, but God will judge whoremongers and adulterers. 
This world is full of pornography, full of filth, full of governments that actually condone the promotion of some of this stuff. Maybe indirectly. What used to be in the United States, if I'm not mistaken, a criminal offence to commit adultery is now now it's, it's advertised in the, in the movie theaters, in the magazines, and it's it's glamorized. And the Apostle Paul says, let not this kind of activity be mentioned once among you. This is practical. You had this this very deep uh, discussion and teaching on salvation and purity and holiness. And now he's saying, this is one way you need to, to put your faith into practice. Be faithful to the one you're married to. And do it according to God's plan and not man's approval. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And that doesn't mean let our speech. It means let our way of life, our lifestyle, our conduct be without covetousness. The Apostle Paul in another epistle says that covetousness is idolatry. Anything that we put above God and idolize, when you covet something, you idolize it, some to the point of worshipping it. You say, oh, I don't bow down, but you do. You submit. When you, when you, put, when you put anything above God, Apostle Paul says that's idolatry. Is he asking much? Is he asking much for someone that saved your soul from eternal damnation and peril? Is he asking much after he had given his life for yours, after he had suffered the shame and the spitting and the, and the punishment for your sin and mine? Is he asking much not to worship anything else but him? And you know, it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have money. What is wrong is the abuse of that money, is the putting to, to use of that money for things that are selfish and things that fulfill your lusts. That's the first, the first uh, thing that comes out of some people's mouths. Well, it's not wrong to be rich. Well, no, it's not. Abraham was very wealthy, very well off. But his life was a life with a tent and an altar. He moved where God told him to move, and then he set up an altar and he worshipped God. And that's what it says. And if you look in the book of Romans chapter 12, when he says, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And that service is not some kind of a main mundane service. I looked up that word this morning. It's G2999 in the uh, Greek's concordance. And there's only three or four places where it's used. And every time it's used for the ministry of God. Service in the temple. Service here. Where you are serving the Lord your God. When we leave the altar and go do our own thing, we're not offering our lives upon that altar as a living sacrifice. So that's a, a lesson, a takeaway from all this, this deep theological discussion. What, how do we apply it? We lay down our lives as a sweet-smelling savour to the living God. And in that is fulfilment. You will be bored. You will be unfulfilled. If you think that all you can do is go somewhere and have a good time and, and not let anyone bother you. I said many times, I said, I would much rather spend two weeks feeding the hungry and the, and the, and the less fortunate than spending two weeks in Hawaii on a beach. What a waste, in my opinion. I don't want to judge people. But just to lie on the beach, sitting there soaking up the sun, Maybe some people need it for therapy, but if that's your idea of, of, of sacrificing your life for Christ, I remember my dad used to say, I used to play sport, loved it as a kid, and I used to argue why it's good. I said, it's good for exercise. He said, you want to exercise? You get a shovel and dig. That was his mentality. That was how he understood things. They never took time for vacation. They never took time for vacation except to take the kids to the beach. To let them enjoy a bit of life. And I don't want to, I don't want to cast us any, any judgment on anyone, but when we are thinking about how we are to spend our time, our money, our efforts, think about, is it going to be, as he says in the book of Corinthians, I believe, or Romans, he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, this past weekend I was sitting there and I was listening to a, a hymn on the, on, the, on the computer. And they, sh they showed you an image of Jesus Christ the tender shepherd with the lamb in his hand. And I don't place value or, mis or mystical uh, uh, worth on a picture of Christ. But my mind went, my mind went to the time When I will see Jesus face to face. When I will see and behold his beauty. 
someone that loves you, someone that understands your inside and out, someone that is a is that shepherd that cares, that will never let you down. And that's what's being stressed here in verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The great shepherd of the sheep through the everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom he glory forever and ever. Man will let you down. Man will disappoint you. And we will disappoint other men and women. But Christ will never. He says... Verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? It just doesn't mean, it means of course that as, as Malachi says, I am the Lord, I change not. He doesn't change, sin doesn't change over time with him. Time does not forgive sin. The blood of Christ forgives sin. His holiness does not change. His view of, of humankind does not change. But what I believe in the context he's saying here, though you may be let down, my men, though you may be disappointed, though you may go through struggles, remember that Jesus is with you and he doesn't change. What he promised to you, he will keep. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. And so the apostle ends on a very, very positive note. Though our lives are full of difficulties, trials, temptations, disappointments... Christ is always there. He's always there for us. And he wants you to be his. He wants you to be his brother. God wants you to be his son and daughter. And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. May the Lord bless the word. To him be the glory evermore. No sermon would perhaps be fully complete unless there's something we could take away and apply to our own lives. And that goes first of all for the one that speaks it and all of us.
And I cannot emphasize enough that a truly fulfilled life is one that is given to Christ in sacrifice. Not to pay back for our sins, for the forgiveness of the sin, but rather as a fulfillment of love. As Christ has loved us and given all, our love is perfected when we love him and give all. And if you seek for fulfillment in any other place, in any other way, you won't find it. God never designed it for that. God meant that fulfillment is when our love is made perfect in him. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.